The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you stars our father's children, when snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, Max. I think you may have muted yourself. Okay, give me just a second. I'm sorry. Operator error. Operator error on my end. <laughs> Apologies. All right. So, without peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas, with new abolitionist and actionist Johanna Lalaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is April 27, 2016, our last program during National Poetry Month. In honor of that, we have a special evening plan. Uh, on tonight's program, we'll be joined by a much-revered guest, internationally celebrated spoken word icon, Abby Odun Oyewole, original member of the legendary group The Last Poets. Abby Odun is a founding member of the American musical spoken word group The Last Poets. On May 19, 1968, the anniversary of Malcolm X's birthday, Doon and two others, David Nelson and Guy Kane, read poetry in tribute to Malcolm X at a memorial for him, and the group was born. The group's message, deeply rooted in black nationalism, quickly became recognized within the African-American community. The last poets, along with the artist Gil Scott Haran, are credited as having had a profound effect on the development of hip-hop music. In 1970, the last poets were signed by jazz producer Alan Douglas and released their first album. The album included their classic poem, Niggas Are Scared of Revolution. The last poet's spoken word albums preceded politically laced rhythm and blues projects such as Marvin Gaye's What's Going On and foreshadowed the work of hard-hitting rap groups like Public Enemy and Dead Press. After being sentenced to four years in North Carolina prison, Oyewole was forced to leave The Last Poets. He served two and a half years of his sentence and during that time attended a nearby college where he earned his BA degree. He went on to earn his PhD from Columbia University in New York City where he served as a faculty member. Oyewole rejoined The Last Poets during its 1990s resurgence. The Last Poets took part in Lollapalooza in 1994 and released a new album entitled Holy Terror in 1995 and a book called on a mission, selected poetry and a history of the last poets in 1996. Oyewole continues to tour various venues giving lectures on poetry and politics. 
he lives now in Harlem, New York City, at the infamous, or not the infamous, but the wonderfully famous 110. If time allows, we plan to cover a few important stories, people, and events relevant to the abolitionist movement. Hold on to your chair. Tonight's going to be powerful and poetic in every sense of the word. A rider of the 21st Century Railroad is Eddie Bolden, who had been in prison for 22 years and missed out on many moments with his son, Dominique Dom. Eddie had been wrongfully convicted of killing two men. He was exonerated this year, but it wasn't until last week that he had been freed. His release was just in time to be there for Dom's graduation. Our abolitionist in profile comes courtesy of tonight's guest, Abiel Dunoye Wale, and is Sojourner Truth, born Isabella Bell Pomfrey, uh, 1797 to November 26, 1883. Oh, man, just a day before my birthday. <laughs> An African-American abolitionist and women's rights activist, Truth was born into slavery in Swartikill, Ulster County, New York, but escaped with her infant daughter to freedom in 1826. After going to court to recover her son in 1828, she became the first black woman to win such a case against a white man. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1641-715-3660. The extension code is 549-032-POUND. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Scotty? I'm sorry to hear you down in the weather with your back, man. Yeah, I'm doing terrible <laughs> right about now, man. Back pain is among the worst pains you could possibly have. I appreciate you soldiering it out for us here, man. And I suspect, uh, based on the message I got from Jan, and he'll be in about 10 or 15 minutes as well. I'm really looking forward to tonight, Scotty. And it's been a hell of a week for me that has just passed for me and everybody here in South Columbia, South Carolina, in that area. You know, we had the awards ceremony that came along, and uh, a lot of my friends were awarded. And we had all of these wonderful, uh, famous, and powerful, and influential artists all together in one room. And I got to speak to them. And you know me, brother. <laughs> I, I made a plea to them, a video I'll share on New Abolitionist Radio. And hopefully, uh, not only will my peers there listen, but people across the country who are into the arts will listen as well. And I'm sure you was pitching the abolitionist message to them. You know, I'm a lifelong member of the spoken word community. Uh, you know, I've been down with all, everybody you can imagine for as long as it goes around. So I'm hoping that that carries some kind of weight. I personally believe that poets are uh, like the strongest force there is right now because, we, you know, it's the, we're the soul of a nation. We usually speak it into existence and, because we thought about it and then the rest of the world catches up. Like in the case of Abiyo Dunoyewoli and the last poets and the huge influence they've had on our culture and not only in America, but uh, globally. You know, they celebrate them out in France with a national holiday. And they've influenced and worked with artists like Kanye West, Nas, and Common, and uh, NWA was influenced and used their tracks. So they've been touching this culture now since the 60s. Well, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to um, hearing the interview. Um, fortunately, because I'm not feeling too good, I'll just be sitting back and, and taking a listen. I'm sure uh, you have much to talk about with him, uh, given, uh, you know, the shared background and whatnot. Um, but, you know, I, I got other reasons for feeling under the weather. I don't know. Sometimes, man, I just listen to black people talk and, and what they do 
in terms of electoral politics, whether you, you know, vote or not. I, I don't really care about that. Um, well, I ain't going to say I don't care about it, but I ain't trying to beat nobody over the head or convince somebody to do something. All right. Um, but when people don't recognize that slavery has never been abolished, when they start quoting the founding fathers like Washington and Thomas Jefferson, some evil, vile, despicable people, and you as a black person want to quote these people and then, you know, want to talk about this the greatest country. This is black folks talking about this the greatest country on the face of the planet. We got so much freedom. We got so much liberty. And when, in fact, you know, we have the largest private prison. I mean, excuse me. Well, that too. But I'm talking about all the prison. We got the largest prison population in the world. And then we yeah, all, you know, uh, uh, when you when you don't want to recognize that or you want to try to minimize that, you want to act like everybody in there belongs to be in there, like they're criminals or, or something to that effect. Never mind the fact the hundreds of people that's getting let go. And I was seeing some of the stories you and Johanna had been sharing and others had shared in the group move to abolish 21st century where you got the federal government admitting admitting to using junk science to con to get convictions of people we're talking about decades and so when you when i hear you say those things when i hear you you know ignoring the suffering of the people and masses of people and you know what max yo you've been you've been to my house do i do do are, are we living in a slum up here do i look like i got a lot to be worried about personally nope not at all so I could sit up here, Max, in my own little world and not give a damn about these people in prison, couldn't I? You could. It's just not in you to do that. So You ain't built that. But, but that's what gets me about these other people. You know, they want to talk about being respectable. They want to talk about, like, they're good people and all this. And How can you be good and support slavery or ignore slavery? Because ignoring it is the same as supporting it. I just had a friend, just like 15 minutes before the program came on, invite me to a conversation where a politician out in Baltimore, I believe it was, was talking about how if you don't vote, uh, you really ain't got no right to talk, and if black lives really matter, you'd be out there and voting. And it's offensive when you say things like that to me. Yeah, it or is. to anybody. And my reply was very simple. I, you know, I said, when some politician says, as has been said now by several of our comrades, like Christopher Irving, that ending slavery is my number one concern. Freedom for the unjustly incarcerated is at the top of my list. And an end to institutional racism stops right now, right here with me. When they just say that, I'm all ears. If you're on some other stuff, I'm not even listening because your priorities are not the same as mine. It's the same thing we've been trying to tell Bernie Sanders his entire campaign when he would not listen and now he lost because of it. Now you want to start talking more about blacks and incarceration and prison and people being lives being destroyed when we was trying to tell you from the jump that was our issue. But you treated like exactly that. It's our issue. And now you're trying to ride those coattails. It's too damn late. You should have thought about that earlier on when we told you. For some God unknown reason, the white population, the elitists, don't seem to believe us when we tell them these things are going on. 
Well, he knows because he wouldn't introduce those bills and he wouldn't, uh, you know, co-sponsor some of them bills. He knows he, the reason he the reason he lost and the reason he losing because he tried to play nice with a slaver. How are you going to play nice with a slaver? How are you going to be cordial with a slaver? Now, he knows hey, that woman's know history, that woman's history and connection to modern day slavery. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be cordial. I'm not trying to be polite. I'm trying to win as an abolitionist so I can set people free. And if that means I got to drag your name through the mud, well, you shouldn't have been in the mud for me to have to drag you through. So he played nice from her, man. At first, I ain't want to believe it, but I think you guys was right. Y'all was right on point. I'm not afraid. I'm not, you know, too proud to say I was wrong. But perhaps he was. Just one of them people just to get people excited, just to get people wanting to vote in the process with no intentions of winning. Because, I mean, some of these things, man, he could have absolutely killed her on. I mean, this woman is facing a federal investigation for a uh, uh, email service she had in her basement that we only found out about because a Russian hacker hacked into it. And he says something to the effect that, we're tired of hearing about her damn emails and whatnot. Dude, if yep. you if she's such a corrupting influence, like you say she is, taking all this money from special interests and all that, how are you not gonna use every weapon in the doggone toolbox against That's this the very woman? First debate, he refused to do that, and I knew what he was doing then. I said as much publicly. The only benefit that that he has is that is that, you know, he forced her to have to talk about these issues. And, you know, she basically, man, this would have been a cakewalk for her if not for him entering into the race. But again, you know, I'm with you guys, man. He did not run a abolitionist platform. As strong as what he should have. It should have. The time was right for it. America was looking for it. Maybe we'll still get it in 2020. Maybe we'll even get it with Jill Stein or someone else, some other third party. Well, candidate. I'm a key fight. Those people man. who don't want to vote for Hillary are going to go somewhere. And we've been having more of these conversations. I don't know if you've seen the conversation we've had with Ken Williams just recently. Uh, Ken Williams and uh, also Sister Nakima Levy Pounds, the NAACP president out in Minneapolis, um, Johanan, uh, myself. Lee Woods has been involved in it. And it was based on a simple question that he asked publicly is what do we want as the 13th Amendment abolitionists? He didn't even understand what we were about. The question was in a way, put in a way as to say, you know, what about the 13th Amendment do you want to abolish? So that just let me know right off the bat, you don't understand where we're coming from. So we had a cordial conversation and tried to present our cases. And uh, it, it just... I think he's coming along, but there was points where you could see that he was dragging his feet because he was fighting against what he was saying. And every avenue where he would say something like, what about the 14th Amendment? Do you think the 14th Amendment is being violated all the time? As if to say it wasn't. And I would show him that because search and seizure laws, yes, the 14th Amendment is being violated every damn day, habitually and his, uh, uh, institutionally. And then he mentioned that we don't lose our rights as prisoners. And I pointed out the 15th Amendment, which is your right to vote, which is gone. 
The 13th Amendment affects both the 14th and the 15th Amendment, making neither one of them applicable because if you're a slave, you're not a citizen. So you lose all your rights. Right. Well, man. And then he went on. I'm sorry. Go uh, ahead. One other thing I wanted to mention about that conversation where he was saying that the part of the exception clause that says indentured servitude is put into place to give the courts the ability to take custodial process or custody of your physical person, not allowing you the right now after that to be able to say, I'm free, I'm leaving, because you are now indentured Servitude. Well, it's involuntary servitude, not indentured servitude. It's involuntary. Involuntary servitude. I'm sorry, my bad. Involuntary servitude. So that was the point he was playing. And he was also saying that the main issue is the laws, the uh, ability that that the individual policeman has to make a choice on what he's going to do. But, you know, he's right to a degree if you don't think, or if you think slavery ended in 1865, yeah, those would be the primary things. But if you believe that slavery never ended, you would see something different. And that's what we're trying to get. Right, right, right. Well, Max, you had um, sent me a track. I know we were supposed to call our guest at uh, 20 after. Did you want me to play that track before we bring him on? Oh, yeah, that would be awesome. Let's play it in the last few minutes before we give him a call and... uh, then we'll call him up afterwards. This is my favorite on his new album, Gratitude. And it's him and his family uh, created this entire album with a lot of help, of course. And this is, uh, just, it's just awesome. Let's go ahead um, and play The Rain. The Rain. Isn't that the name of it? The Rain? Yes, sir. The oh. Rain from the album Gratitude, which is being released shortly. Telling me to worry, boy, the 
Oh, indeed, brother. You, uh, I, I certainly appreciate it from here and everybody I know. Yeah, so uh, and this I is... Um, you to our co-host, Scotty Reed, who is executive producer at Abbey O'Doom. Hey, hey, I'm I'm not gonna complain, bro. I'm surviving. Um, glad to have you on the program. I love that track myself. Uh, can't wait to hear the rest of the CD. Uh, Max, uh, just want to let you know, uh, Johan is on. Yeah, well, thank you. We're having a. a Please CD. welcome Johan. Welcome home, uh, Johan and Elijah is our other co-host. Uh, Abby O'Doone, Johan, Johan and Abby O'Doone. Okay. Peace, welcome. Welcome, Elder. It's so good to have you. I'm, I'm I'm on the radio program here with everybody, but I promise you, I'm going to be listening and looking to pick up every jewel you drop. So go right ahead. Uh, Make yourself at home. <laughs> Thanks, thank you for having me on, brother. Doing, you know, I got a ton of questions for you. As you know, uh, we're going to try to do this a little different than we, I guess, we would normally do with a spoken word star as your quality. Everybody knows about you being a poet and what you do as poetry, but they uh, often don't hear about your work outside of the poetry within the community and things like that. And I'd like to share a few of those as well as tap into your history and experience coming up during the 60s uh, as and becoming a national icon through spoken word and influencing so many artists and the culture of arts along the way. Um, you know, those are just some of the things that I've personally seen in my own lifetime coming from you. Like, I want to know about your experiences with COINTELPRO, because I know you were under surveillance during the Black Liberations Movement. Uh, you were one of the premier people that were under surveillance. You were the rest of the last poets. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear stories about that, how you dealt with it, what happened, and things like that. Yeah, well, you know, um, it's funny you mentioned that, because I served some time in Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina, and um, I'm a part of a village in South Carolina, an African village called Oyotunji, and it's still there in Shelvin, South Carolina. And um, I, I was one of the initial investors of the village in 1970, actually. 69 is when it was beginning, but 70 is when it really was up and running. So um, the brother who gave me my name, Baba Osurjima Adepumi, who was known as Kaviesi, was the one who was like in charge. And um, evidently, the uh, FBI sent some, by some spy guy down. And, and you're dealing with the Yoruba religion. They can read you before you get there. I mean, that's that's the other part <laughs> about, about us. We have that magic. So um, what happened is uh, this guy, he went there, and I guess he had a dashiki on and probably some African name. I don't know. But all of a sudden, he just disappears. And um, nobody knows what happened. He's not reporting back to headquarters or anything. So I'm in the joint, and I get to this visitor, and I'm trying to figure out. I didn't know I was having a visit, and it was a little FBI guy. And, uh, and I remember his name was Greenberg. He was from Brooklyn, and he started telling me how he had been assigned to me back in 1968 because of the last poets. And, and uh, how when I left Harlem and came to North Carolina, he had just been tracking all of my moves. So I said, well, if you know where I've been at and what I've been doing, you must know I've been here for about two years now, and I wouldn't know where your agent is. I would have no idea. I said, but you're dealing with people who have magic. And he could have gone poof up in smoke. I mean, just <laughs> like that. I said, and it's unfortunate that he's down here snooping because you can't snoop on people who can read what's happening. And I said, but um, I don't know what makes you think I would have any knowledge of your agent, you know? And um I said, well, your wife writes you a lot. And, or maybe she may have told you something. I said, 
So I, I don't know anything, man. So it's just, you just took a wasted trip to see me, you know. But mm. yeah, I, I was told that he had been assigned, and I wasn't surprised since because they had just put us on that list because of what we were saying and the fact that um, everybody who wasn't exactly pledging allegiance to the flag was under surveillance, and even those who were. I mean, so it's because, see, the deal is when you're dealing with America, America's got so many skeletons. they got graveyards in their closet. I mean, they've done so much dirt, and we've done as much dirt, and you've been as nasty as they have. The only thing you're worried about is somebody doing something to you. And so you, so behind that, your safety net is just watching everybody. So you're, you're suffering from paranoia over time because you know you've been nasty, you've been out of order, you've been totally wrong, and you know karma is alive. And But they can't stop it. It's gonna, they're going to get what they deserve, and that's reality. Mm. You know, Dune, I've had some uh, wonderful experiences, memorable lifetime experiences with you. Uh, one particular moment uh, that you, you may remember is uh, about two years ago, I was down on one of your Sunday brunches, and a brother came in with a copy, a uh, reproduction of the Green Book. And yeah. for those who don't know, the Green Book was printed, I believe, was it back in the 50s, Doom, that it was printed? Yeah. Yes, uh, yes, sir. A traveler's guide for African Americans to find safe havens along the road that would serve blacks or treat blacks uh, equally or correctly rather than in, uh, discrimination. So this book was necessary in those days, and they reproduced it and brought the first copy to you. <laughs> and I was there. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I just made a financial arrangement with the brother. His name is Calvin Ramsey, and he's right. getting ready to record. He's getting ready to do some recording around the theme of the Green Book, and he asked me to how much it would cost for me to write a poem that could be used and so forth. So I did. He was here Sunday. And I read the poem. I fact, I have it right here. I can put my hands on it. You can hear it. But it's so that's oh, wonderful, uncanny. If you mention it, because that's I'm going to probably because he said after he asked me would it cost more for me to go to the studio, and uh, and and lay it down. I said, well, you know, my time is money. I said, we can work something out. But this, but this you can always call in. He, he, he can always check the archives and just download new abolitionist radio where you send it live yeah, on the air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true too. So, so this is it's called an ode to the Green Book. The way we looked out for one another is never really publicized. It seems the media likes to highlight the stories of our demise. To come to Harlem and try to live, many black folks had to give a helping hand to each other because we are really sisters and brothers. To find a job and place to stay and make our lives a brighter day. These are the things we used to share because we are people who always care. Even when times were hard and we needed some food to eat, blacks provided meals for some who were living in the street. Rent parties were in then, so you wouldn't get evicted. Together we knew how to win, and our love was never restricted. That's, that's it. I, I got the snaps going on over here, Brother Dylan. You heard the exclusive <laughs> here at News Miss Radio. Well, Shout out to I, Brother Calvin, too. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. All that. Well, here. Word, man. Um, 
you know, we, as I said, we, we've had some experiences together. And um, several times we've had the conversation of abolitionism. You know, I've been an abolitionist for years. And now we've seen this movement growing and taking root and people grasping onto it because they see that it doesn't make sense to take this slavery language out of our Constitution, to get rid of for-profit prisons and policing for profit and ticket quotas and immigration quotas and to take away those incentives that cause a man to hunt another man for profit and then to release people from prison unjustly put in there over the course of the past 45 years since the birth of uh, prison for profit, basically with the war on drugs. Yeah. You know, um, I agree with what you're saying. And we're talking about an inhumane society because locking people up doesn't do anything. I mean, it really doesn't. And it's really sad, but they've created, an entire slave concept with this prison stuff, and especially now that they're privatizing it. So prisons are going to be doing more than making license plates, and uh, and there are because in Caledonia where I was at, I mean in, in North Carolina where I was at, Caledonia and Oldham are prison farms, and if you want some canned vegetables uh, provided by North Carolina, you're getting stuff that was put together by the prisoners because they work in the fields. It's like we did. 300 years ago. So, you know, but we're dealing with um, this whole concept of brutality and, and inhumanity by somebody who really has a hard time being human. You know, his history speaks loudly. I mean, he we, we had to teach him how to be human. We, in our chains, we brought humanity to this country. And we, even though we were supposedly called slaves, he knew what was up because we fed him, we breastfed his baby. I mean, there's too many telltale signs that say he knew we were superior people. How are you going to treat somebody like a savage or dog or whatever and then get every single drop of soul you can from them, every single ounce of humanity that you can from them because you can't provide it for yourself? And they, they're quite clear. And much of what is racist is just simply their pure jealousy because they weren't given the gifts. You know, when the gods were giving out stuff, they got it left out on a lot of parts. And they really have not come to grips with that. And uh, our thing, my thing is that what we need to do is concentrate on what we can do to help each other more and stop concentrating on what they're doing to hurt us because as long as we're protesting and having all these um, uh, different kind of protest marches and things we need to be building we need to really that's my concern i want to see us construct and do for ourselves i know we built before we had black wall street and they burn it down and some people say that time we built they're going to burn it down we still have to continue to build but also learn how to protect what we build that's key as well but that's that's right now because i mean there's this whole movement about shut it down people not going to certain stores and, and, all, and that's cool, but we need stores because we have things that we need. And so we should have a place. We don't have to protest going to their stores. Just have our stores and go where we should go. I mean, it's it's some work on our parts that, that still needs to be done. You know, Brother Doom, in the past decade or so that I've been fighting this abolitionist fight, I've seen two extremes occur. The first extreme is in the prison for profit industry spreading throughout the federal and state institutions and then going globally up until the point where today the second largest employer, private employer in the entire world is a prison company, G4S, 
Uh, mm -hmm. They are actually the largest employer in the continent of Africa, a prison company, the GEO wow. Group. Uh, it's become so monstrous and so huge that entire nations have now made contracts with private prisons to manage all of their prisons. Man, and wow. they're also increasing uh, the rate of incarceration for African-Americans, where in some states like in Vermont, which I keep mentioning, one of the worst, the rate of incarceration for blacks and whites is 14 blacks for every one white per 100,000. Yeah. It has gotten so ridiculous. And the other extreme is that we see that they are also they also have their backs against defense now. For the first time, this type of industry in the past 50 years has had to defend its actions. And it's also seeing a loss in revenue from many colleges and institutions led by student movements leading divestment campaigns, which has cost them in the past couple of years somewhere near half a billion dollars. Oh, I just wanted to chime in here because we just had this sort of similar conversation with Mr. James Klingman, the uh, mm -hmm. author of Black Blackonomics, and he yeah. was he was on the radio show Sunday on our network. And okay. we were talking about this issue uh, of, of slavery, prisons, and, and what have you. And some of the callers were saying, because I've heard this and they're saying, you know, well, we just need to focus on our economic side and creating jobs and being entrepreneurs and all of that. And it's not that I don't disagree with that, but I, can, I feel like I can walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. I can be an okay. entrepreneur and be an abolitionist because just, to, you know, uh, uh, what's that guy's name? They made the movie Twelve Years a Slave. Uh, what was his name? Solomon Northrop. See, Solomon he was just focused on his economics and doing business and and all of that too. When he got kidnapped into slavery, and that's the way we look at it today, man. It's just a continuation of that. I'm not disputing anything you say about you know building our community so we're more self-sufficient that's i mean if we're not building you know it's like if you tear something down mm -hmm. and you destroy you got to have something to replace it and and that's a part of the abolition movement the abolition movement is just not to abolish uh the slave practices in america but to establish something that will allow us to exercise freedom i mean that's the right. bottom line if right you don't right something to exercise freedom then you're going to be a volunteer slave you're going to go to Charlie and get on your knees and beg him for a job. I mean, and so we have to be able to provide for ourselves. And that in itself is a fight and it's a focus that we need to have. And then you, then if I got a place where I can get my food, I got a place where I can get all the stuff that I need from black folks who are providing it. I don't need you. I don't need you in a big way. And I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with every little aspect of what you're doing to hurt my people. I'm fighting against you by having something of my own. Amen to that. Um, yes, we are certainly building, Brother Doon, uh, just this year, and actually last year and this year has seen the first introduction of abolitionist candidates running on an abolitionist platform into politics since uh, John Quincy Adams. The first was Amoja uh, Ajabu, and uh -huh. he was out of Indiana running for Congress. And this year we had someone running for Senate, someone, uh, two people running for Congress, as well as a councilman and a mayor. So we're trying to build this up around the idea of freedom and getting our people freedom. Um, I mean, you know, what good is a revolution if you're not getting freedom, you know? Yeah, but as you, you said, know, you right. have to have something to replace it. Exactly. And, and see, like, the sad part about it is that 
when Barack Obama got in office, a whole lot of people thought there was a second coming of Christ or something magnificent was going to happen. He was hired as a maintenance man. That's usually the situation they give black people when they give them these positions. They give them a mop and a bucket and say, get this mm. stuff cleaned up. And that's what was happening with him. He was no more than the custodian of a school building. I mean, the Bushes had ambushed the country, had wiped the country out economically, and he came back and brought things together. We do that over time. He had no chance, no pl no power to do anything specifically for black folks. He didn't do as much for black folks as Carter did. Carter, Jimmy Carter at least provided us with a, a black labor secretary named Ernie Green, who had been in the fire. And he, what did he do? He created a program called the Recruitment Training Program, which allowed brothers on the street to get their their craft education, the plumbing, electricity, uh, uh, carpentry, and that's that's a nice that's a nice living if you can get that and get your your union um, membership and all that stuff. You can live a pretty decent life. I mean, uh, every, everybody knows that. So, but those are skills, and you're not going to go out and, and try to rob somebody. You might not sell drugs. A lot of stuff you may do to stay out of harm's way if you got a real crap that you can live off of. But Barack Obama hasn't done that. I'm hoping that somehow, and I know it's a kind of a miracle hope, that he would, in his last few days or months, will just go ahead and free all the political prisoners, starting hmm. with Assad and Shakur. That would be a black move that he could make. Clinton and Nixon and free all their rogue friends when they left office. Every president has the option to do that. They can pardon them, whatever. Just on your watch. That would be a wonderful thing to do. I don't think his spine is strong enough to do it. And that's the sad part because he's he's caught up. They got him in the matrix and he probably fears something in relationship to his family and everything else. I he's really know. good at taking credit for things he he doesn't he isn't really doing. You know, uh we, we <laughs> noticed that a lot. You know, like for instance, with the prison population, he was the first president to visit a prison just recently. And they got a, uh, a group together to decide what needs to be done. And the conclusion was to reduce the prison population, which is 2.4 million, by 60,000 over the course of 10 years. Well, over the course of 10 years, more than that many people will have uh, been coming into the prisons by a long shot. There's course, 13 million who go into the jails alone. You ain't doing nothing. It's six and one and half a dozen the other. You're not doing right. anything. It's a rotation, man. No, we need something that is not going to allow you to be in prison. Especially, you got a lot, a lot of brothers in jail for some fake drug charges. I mean, it's really embarrassing. I mean, they shouldn't be there, but they're there because they need the warehouses because that's money and it's that slave plantation thing. They got us working, and that's that's another thing. It's a whole bunch of stuff involved that have nothing to do with justice at all. And and, and uh, we we really need to have something to occupy our times in a constructive way and help the, uh, folks have an opportunity to experience whatever this land of uh, so-called milk and honey has to offer. But that's not being available, made available. They've got us in another zone. And, and we have not made any real demands of him because he was black. So everybody kind of stayed off and didn't give him a list of demands and stuff like that. And we should have been on his case to make him do certain things. FDR did some social things for the people of America because he was he was asked to. And of course, Eleanor was out there hanging out with Mary McLeod Bethune. So there were people that were 
already in the mix of understanding what black life was all about and how people in general needed some help. So FDR provided some programs that some people have lived of ever since and that did not exist before. Unfortunately, mm. Barack Obama does not have that in him. And I feel badly because it was like a waste of eight years in many ways. The only thing we get out of this is a nice photo op with him and his wife and kids. Wow. You know, I would like to dig more into your history and experience, but before I do so, I would like to invite either of my co-hosts, if you have a question you'd like to ask. Yeah, yeah sure. Whatever you want to know. Um, and if you're listening online and you have a question, please uh, call in. Uh, dial into the number here. The number is one six four one seven one five three six six zero. The code is 549-032-POUND. Just press star six and one if you're already on the line and you'd like to queue up for a question. Johanna, Scotty, anything? Well, I, I just wanted to thank you for bringing up political prisoners because most of the people in the United States don't even know that these political prisoners exist. I mean, how are you going to be John Lewis, part of the civil rights movement, getting beat down and all this and that, and then you get in Congress, and then you you know about these people that's in there, and you never bring them up. You know, you mentioned Asada Shakur, um, but there are so many other. Dr. Matulu Shakur, you know, we have a radio program that's in hiatus right now. We're uh, getting a new host, but it's called Political Prisoner Radio. So I'm just so happy that you brought yeah. up po the political prisoners. I think Cynthia well, yeah, McKinney I'm in, is I'm the in touch with some of them, like Mamiya. And and of, and of course, Tupac's father, um, um, you know, I'm in touch with him as well, uh, because um, these brothers are in there for ridiculous amounts of time. And and Mamiya, the, 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 the case was just shady from the beginning. And, and there are a lot of people that would like to see him out. But the fact is that he's been in there and Barack Obama could make a big difference. And it'd be the blackest thing he could do in his lifetime. Just let these brothers go. Just let them go. How simple yeah. is that? That's all I had, Johanna. Yeah, I appreciate right, right. that, brother. Yeah. We have to be concerned about it. We got too many good brothers locked up and sisters as yeah. well. We have to keep, I mention them too because a lot of times brothers overshadow the fact that we've had some sisters who've taken some major chances and they got caught up in the crossfire and uh, right. they need to be released as well. So it's a whole, you know, the liberation of us doesn't just end, abolition doesn't just end with the people out here trying to find a better way to live. But it's like, you know, we got some folks who are still on the plantation. They just happen to call it the prison. And, right. You know, as I mentioned earlier, this has become such a global phenomenon now in the last 45 years since the induction of the first private prisons in Louisiana that it's, it's, it's grasped the whole globe on a level that we never imagined. Now, speaking of that global... Max, before you move you on, Max, before yes, you sir. move on, Johanna was trying to jump in. Oh, I'm sorry, Johanna. You got to speak up, Johanna. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, I'm sitting here listening to the Giants, so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn, but along the lines of what's being uh, being discussed with political prisoners and then also uh, uh with our with our dear elder here speaking to us about you know making sure that our vision of abolitionism uh is is you know more expanded i just uh want to bring to the listeners you know remind the listeners that you know one of the things that we point out on this program the way that it's going to work is to first end slavery 
then we can go in and free our slaves. Once exactly. we get the slaves, once we get the slaves freed, the reason we haven't been able to get reparations is because slavery is not over. So reparations come to, to war victims after the war is declared over. So we've got to end slavery, free the slaves, then get reparations. With the reparations is where we'll be able to achieve black autonomy by, like you said, creating jobs, building the community, putting money into people trying to start businesses and, and so forth by having that having those assets. Um, but and, my and question brother, to you... And, 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 and yes, that, sir. I don't want to interrupt you, but you know what your reparations mm -hmm. is, brother? You, if you watch a basketball game, you're looking at your reparations run up and down the court. If you're watching a football game, you're looking at your mm -hmm. reparations run up and down the field. Those brothers are mm -hmm. making millions of dollars. And, right. and nobody really taxing those brothers to say, yo, you've got to give a percentage to the hood where you were raised or something. Now, this is one reason why I'm a big LeBron James fan. He put up $41 million in a foundation for kids coming out of Ohio to go to college and think got the money to pay the tuition of the college. All they got to do is be accepted by some school and their money's taken care of. That is taking your money and doing something good for the hood. We could save right. ourselves on a whole lot of levels economically if we come together. But a lot of the brothers that are getting that money are being hoardish with it. They're being just like Michael Jordan. They're just grandstanding and they're not really trying to help out the, the folks. They charge two hundred and fifty some dollars for some damn sneakers and it's embarrassing. The reality is right. that we need to be concerned. We used to be. There's a lack of it now in terms of the money divide. But the fact is that that's the reparations right there. And besides, reparations doesn't mean economics only. It's like a repairment of, the, of everything. We have a certain a little character inside of us that says, I'm supposed to be working on Maggie's farm. I'm supposed to be uh, following and looking for approval from this character. I mean, it's just like when you mentioned earlier about the Grammy Award. I don't care nothing about no Grammy Awards. We got the last poets of the piece with Common called The Corner, and we got the Grammy nomination, and I went to yep. the Grammys and sold my tickets because I was going to the Kanye West party because I knew he knew how to party better than the Grammy people. The fact is that it was an experience to see, but that's not at all anything I look forward to. I want to see us be liberated, and liberation to me, Freedom is a responsibility. It's not just saying, I'm going to let you go. You've been in prison 20 years, you can go now. No, where am I going to? What am I going to do? How am I going to eat? How am I going to sleep? What is going to happen with tomorrow? And that's the concern that we've got to have. So it's a front on, on all sides. We want to get this, this foot off our necks. And at the same time, we want to do something that will allow us to walk straight ourselves. Mm. You're answering a lot of my questions before I even get to ask them, dude. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, here's one. Let me see if I can pull this one out of you. You work with everybody. You've influenced them all, from Nas to Kanye West to Common, as you just mentioned, uh, Grammy-nominated. Uh, just down the list, Chuck D. You sat, you built with these brothers and sisters of the industry. What is the mindset, do you think, in that arena of, of thinkers do you uh think that they're at the point where they are sick and tired of this and they want to see an end or yeah, they are well, more of the mindset of the reform where they you know fix here fix there fix what we can fix while we can fix it we got some brothers and sisters in that world of hip-hop who are very conscious and very astute business people as well i'm real proud of the, some of the connections i've made with some of these folks some of these young people because uh, there's, there is hope. I see, I see hope. 
and I know that they're all not buying the lie, and that, that makes me feel real proud. Um, uh, uh, there, there's like, and I discovered even though a lot of people have this distaste for, of course, they're overused. Many of them overuse cases of the, of the word nigger. When the reality is that the nigger has been redefined again. Everybody in the world wants to identify with that character because that character represents a rebel, somebody who can't be put in a box, somebody who's not following the rules, somebody that's going to break all the rules, and they do it deliberately, and sometimes be a little rude about it. But the fact is that they definitely can't be tied down. Their words can't be handcuffed, and that's and that's where they're coming from. I understand that. There's only The only thing that we need to do is recognize that respect must come with every single thing we do. And that's the only part of hip-hop that I have a problem with. Some of the hip-hop artists have made sloppy a part of the culture. And I'm not down with sloppy. We don't need to walk around showing our underwear. We don't need to have our shoes untied. I mean, there's certain kinds of disciplines that must... We got to put some respect on our name. We got to. And we must enforce <laughs> some discipline. And we don't want... And see, when they don't want to be disciplined, that means you're planning to fail because you've got to have some discipline. So, you know, the, the, but hip-hop, could easily be a Rolls Royce. It depends upon the driver. If you got a bad driver, I don't care what kind of nice car you got, you can have a wreck in a minute. And that's what hip hop has been in some cases, an absolute total collision of madness. But then you have some people like Rakim, for example, who's never cursed. He all even says the N word. And of course, Chuck D has always been conscious of case KRS. There are quite a few. Melly Mel, who I know well, he's on some of our CDs. Because he said he has something to say. I mean, I mean, God, his um, "Don't push me because I'm close to the edge." That's like that's an anthem of, of for mm-hmm. a lot of people on the planet Earth, you know. So they have made some statements. They touched the pulse of the people around the world in many, many ways. And it's just a matter of them gaining more. I have had great success in ter- in terms of talking to these brothers and giving them some information. I did a major article with Q before he went Hollywood. I was in California with him. After he had done his album, we were talking about the Ghetto Bird, which is, of course, talking about those helicopters flying in around the Compton area, shining their lights on the people in the middle of the night, you know, and just interrogating them with, with their equipment. And um, we talked about a lot of stuff that made sense. But they didn't send me out there to be friendly with him, they sent me out there to spank him because he was using the word D-I-T-C-H too much and, and nigger too much. They wanted me to do an old school spanking like you shouldn't talk like that. Uh, I said, if a sister acts like a B-I-T-C-H and that's what you got to call her. We laughed and slept five. I mean, the reality is that we were talking real talk. But like, there's some brothers and sisters in that world who are conscious and I definitely champion. I'm very proud of what Beyonce did with the Super Bowl. That was fabulous. Uh, a tribute to the Black Panthers and with the other group, they made an X. We all know who the X Man is. I'm very uh, proud Kendrick of Lamar's Kendrick, performance as Kendrick well. Kendrick Lamar's performance, exactly. So you know, there's and the conscious. We are at a state right now where hip hop is going to be a major part of ushering in a, a cultural revolution, and that's very key to what we need. When we have a cultural revolution, we'll start recognizing there is a need for us to demand certain things and get the action, get some things done. I mean, and I, I would love to really see somehow that we could put some power, I mean, put some pressure on Barack Obama for him to do what I was saying a while ago with freeing political prisoners because he has the power to do that. But I just don't think his spine is going to allow him to be that strong. 
I, I don't think so either. And, and I, I am very appreciative of today's artists and the level of consciousness that is being raised among some of the more preeminent ones who have decided to use their platform to make a difference. And even, you know, someone as, as bad as Kanye West can be sometimes making oh, yeah, his yeah, business yeah. to show that we are the new slaves and put it out there in songs so people could understand it. Uh, this this is a huge industry. When we're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking, we're talking about just in the U.S. alone, a half a trillion dollars a year industry where they're sending prisoners from Hawaii to Arizona in prisons built only to house Hawaiians. They're sending right. prisoners from Alaska to Kentucky to do their time in Kentucky and Virginia and, and, and all these different places. That's human trafficking. It's illegal anywhere in the world. The same thing with these bails bonds. There's only two countries in the entire world that actually has a cash bail system and bail bonds, in, and that's us in the Philippines. Everybody else thinks it's a crime. I know. Now, you know, I, I spent time talking with Harry Belafonte because he's right here in the city and he's been given a floor at the um, 1199 Union on the 14th floor is all, all, all Harry Belafonte's because he was very instrumental in getting that union started and, of course, what he did in terms of the civil rights movement because they work hand in hand. <clears throat> but, but you know, I don't know if you recall, if you see it, I mean, Harry right now is, what, 90 years old? And the first thing mm-hmm. he says when he starts talking is that America has more men in prison than any country on the planet. That tells you something really terrible right away. Yeah. Not just men, women and children, too. Yeah, absolutely. More people, right. More people are incarcerated in America than any other country in the world. Now, that's crazy when you consider that we don't have the largest population. Is China, there's India, they, they eclipse America in terms of population, but you have more people in prison than those countries. That is ridiculous. And as you open that flower of horrors, you start seeing that the numbers change drastically. Uh, not only do we have the largest prison population in the history of the world, on planet Earth, in this country, 25% of the prisoners with only 5% of the world's populations but also, when you open up that flower, you start seeing that the racial uh, difference starts getting very, very explosive to the point where, as I said, you see incarceration rates where people of color only make up 30% of the population, but make up 60% of the prison population. Oh, yeah. But you know what? That's yeah, Don't be so sure we don't have a bigger population because they know that they're dying. And we are definitely increasing in a very short while in our lifetime. White people will be the minority in America. Yeah, they predicted this by 2050, I believe, that they'd be oh, the yeah, minority. Yeah. yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, they, and they're scared to death of that. That's why they're selling they're selling the Susie Cream Cheese on television like that's the late, she's on the clearance table. They see Everybody, get yourself a black person, please, as quickly as you can. <laughs> I mean, they I mean they all and they would, they may try to blame it on King or whatever. The fact is that their survival's at stake. And they, they say, we might as well hook up with a black person because I can't hook up with, if I hook up with another uh, um, person like myself, we may not be here long. So they got a whole you know, plan. You've done this all over the world. You've stood in France saying America is a terrorist, uh, one of your <laughs> opponents. 
you know, yeah. <laughs> like telling the whole country. And in the 60s, you stood out and, and did your thing with uh, niggas that are scared of revolution. And right. I know that you had opposition at every angle. Who has been the biggest opposition to what you've been trying to accomplish with through your revolutionary art? You know, I really, to be perfectly honest, I think that some people are afraid to even challenge us. I've had uh, one, for example, when I did When the Revolution Comes in Kentucky, I remember this was kind of funny. Um, uh, it was right after the Twin Towers thing, and we had a gig in Kentucky. I called Kentucky to see what was going on. They said, nobody rents our buildings here. We're straight. You know, we're watching what's happening in New York City on TV. But we're looking forward to seeing the last poets at our school. So we went, we had a nice audience. It was beautiful audience, places packed. And um, I did uh, When the Revolution Comes. And the first line is that, um, well, one of the earlier lines, When the Revolution Comes, preach a, um, uh, some of us I catch on TV with chicken hanging from our mouths. You know, the revolution because there will be no commercial. When the revolution comes, preacher pimps going to split the scene with the communion wine stuck in their back pockets. Faggots won't be so funny then, and all the junkies will quit their nod and wake up. So anyway, when I was afterwards, we had a talk back with the audience. So this guy raised his hand and says, yeah, I enjoyed the concert, brother, except that I didn't like that part where you said, faggots won't be so funny then. And I said, um, um, are you a faggot, brother? <laughs> and, it, and, 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 it, and it really, I said, because I know some gay people and they don't like faggots either. I said, I think that's a certain kind of low class person that may practice homosexuality, but they don't really even have to to be called a faggot. And it was, it blew everybody's mind. And, and, mm. and he didn't know what to say because he had taken offense, but he had taken it from a different position that I was referring to gay people. And if I said faggot, I meant faggot. <laughs> and, you know, somebody that's going to be an over-exhibitionist in that regard, you know, you're not gay. You know, you got some other issues going on. But it's like, that's probably one of the few times when I've had any kind of serious opposition. Uh, most people are still kind of afraid of the last poets. And it blows my mind because I'm a real nice person. I wouldn't hurt anybody. But, like, the bottom line is that I mean what I say. And and I don't, when I say even like now Russell Simmons, he would not put Reign of Terror on death poetry. He was scared to death. He he said to, he said to me, he says, uh, Mary Rocker comes in here talking about who blew up America. Then you guys come in here talking about America's terrorists. <laughs> you, guys, you guys are going to shut me down. I say, I said, Russell, we're just trying to make a man out of you. That's all we're doing, man. I said, it ain't got nothing to do with shutting you down. But I must thank Jessica. Because Jessica Kale Moore, one of my proteges, she told me at the soundtrack, she says, don't do Rain of Terror and the soundtrack. Do something else. Because if you do Rain of Terror, he's going to do spend the rest of the afternoon trying to talk you out of not doing it. So, so you know, and we start, the whole show is live. And he can't stop you once you get started. So I did it live. But if you, if you Google up the last poets on Death Poetry, you're going to see us do the piece that I did in soundcheck because after I did bring it and got a tremendous ovation, um, uh, people standing up and going crazy. And he, he calls down to the backstage and says, have him go on stage and do the poem they did at the soundcheck. So that's the piece that you'll see on the air because he refused to air me doing Reign of Terror, which you see, they, they talk about ISIS and all this stuff. We have experienced something that goes way beyond ISIS. ISIS is a drop in the bucket compared to what black people have experienced in America. And that's all I was trying to expose. We know what terrorism is about. 
and have known it for many, many years and had to work with it. I mean, and, and it's something that nobody really wants to relate to, but it's a reality. You created an entire organization called the Ku Klux Klan just to terrorize us because yep. you, you were upset that slavery was over. We weren't going to pick your cotton for free no more. So you're going to scare us to death and use the cross at the same time. I mean, this is insane. This is, but it's the work of an immature being. And that's the other piece that we have to recognize. White people are not mature. They are immature. And that's another basic reason for their problems. They're children and they have not grown up. They're underdeveloped children and they're trying to masquerade as adults. They just don't have it. Adults would know how to be respectful and would give credit to people who have done no harm to them. We're the nicest companions they've ever seen in their lives. We've been better to them than they have been to themselves. And they know that. But it also causes them to be extremely jealous and upset. You know, Brother Doom, uh, we've gone beyond the time that I asked you to be on here. And if you want to stay a little longer, I'd appreciate it. But it's totally up to you. Um, well, I, I, I have a couple of things I have to do, but I just want to say that I appreciate the moment. And if you want me to be on again, I'll be glad to come back and talk and share some more. Well, because there's, can I there's just a ask two more questions before you go? Sure. Is that possible? All right. All right. right. The first one is from one of our listeners, David Ratsack, Mitsack, who is saying that your gatherings restored and strengthened his faith in humanity and how to be an older brother. And he has a question. He says, are you still feeling and giving and enjoying all of that love? Oh, man, please. I'm, I, I just came back from Lafayette, Louisiana, about about three, four weeks ago. I've never been to Lafayette. I never even knew about Lafayette. And Lafayette is a lovely town in Louisiana with, with some beautiful black folks. And the sister that brought me made the best peach cobbler. Oh, my God. The place was packed. I had a... I had a workshop with 150 people who does who well, how do you do a workshop with 150 people i mean stand room only workshop so the people were hungry and they were ready to listen so i just simply gave them i said listen get a piece of paper and a pen and let me give you a bibliography i'm gonna give you all the books that i've read that helped me get a heads up as to who we are and what we should be trying to strive for so i gave you know destruction of black civilization moon two uh of course Chancel William, everything, everything that I've read, uh, Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon, uh, all the stuff that I've read, everything that gave me information and knowledge as to where we need to go and how we need to get there. And, uh, and it was just in this concert was just as beautiful. So here I am in this town that, uh, then I got a, I read a, a woman who gave me this herb that's just good for everything. I mean, so in traveling, around this country and seeing the different spots and seeing that we have got some magic still even here in this place. We have not lost Africa. Everywhere we go, we take Africa with us and we learn how to talk to the soil and get things out of it. And and mm. just and going to different places and experiencing this man and knowing that our people are very much alive and vibrant and we haven't missed, we're not losing nothing. And if we continue to recognize that, I think that we'll see some changes that will, could be very surprising because they, 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 they've hurt some of us, of course. We know that. And some folks are damaged beyond repair. But we have a lot of people who are very well and who have something to offer. And traveling around this country and seeing the brothers and sisters in different remote parts of America have really made my heart feel good because 
I, it does reinstall my, reinstall my faith. And then every Sunday I have my open house here, and that's been outrageous. And I've got some great musicians that come through and sing. I mean, it's amazing the talent that we have and how, and how much we have in our minds that people can't always look in our faces and see. It's amazing how much stuff we still have to share with each other. And all we need sometimes is a platform. So I'm just happy that I'm able to provide some kind of platform for folks to share and, and, and get that stuff out of them and, and get some feedback because the communication piece is important and it just takes time and consistency before we see some changes. Amen. Well, my last question uh, would be your new CD, uh, Gratitude, is absolutely incredible. One of the best I've ever heard of any job. And well, I'm sure our listeners, <laughs> our listeners want, after hearing that first track, I know they want to find out how they can get it. I know you've got a CD release party coming up real soon in uh, New York that your son is managing. Uh, would yeah. you like to tell us about yeah, that? Yeah, the CD release party is on the 20th of, of May, and it's the day right after the anniversary of the last poets. Because the anniversary of the last poets is Malcolm's birthday, which is a holy day, May 19th. Uh, and, um, so we're having a CD release party in Harlem at a, a place called Besame, and that's Spanish for Kiss Me. And it's on 124th Street and Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard. A nice spot. It's kind of new and it's very artistically laid out and it's just, it's a feel good place. And it's spacious, spacious enough for me to have a nice CD release party there. And I'm really proud of Gratitude because of the fact that that is a complete, family project everybody there is a family member that all the tracks were done by my grandson my um the um all the the uh hooks were hooked up by my son who is just a genius when it comes to organizing stuff all i did was write the poetry and perform it and and i sang a couple of songs but the, the I, I was like i guess maybe the nucleus the egg but the egg got dressed up lovely with, by my kids. My lawyer son, Oba, is the one that picked everything for me to do because I have a folder with some of my latest work in it. And he would read through the stuff and he'd say, you got to do this, Pops. You got to do this. So I, he picked the stuff too. And it was a nice collaboration. And um, and, and then my daughter-in-law, she's, she's singing on there. She's a diva. Uh, I'm just really proud of that whole piece because I didn't have to go with it. It's like... It's like what Adam said. He had a piece. Of, it's in your hand. What's in your hand? So this is right there in my hand. This is right. My this is family, and so and we come up with something fabulous. And I really didn't even want to deal with it because I'm not into tracks. I like live instruments. I like give me a real bass, a real drum. I want to see the guy right. sweat. But my my son, the lawyer son, kept on telling me that Arando, you know, he does great tracks and this. I said, no, I'm not interested in no tracks. It took me over a year before I finally went over to his house. And and we got down. I said, but this is my grandson. Jesus, I should have been here by now. And uh, his wife is just a lovely person. I call her Smiley because she's got a beautiful smile. And they got a beautiful, rough-rider little kid who just wants to just beat up everybody. And I love him to death. He's a great kid. And uh, the tracks was something special. And I really realized that he had talents. And now it's just a add a tag to it, his tracks are so special until now he's working with Dre out in California. Mm-hmm. So he travels from Brooklyn to L.A. Like some of us might go from Manhattan 
to, to Brooklyn. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's amazing. Awesome. So, so, so he's he's doing his thing. He's made he's making his mark because he does have skills, and um, and I'm really proud of that. And I'm also proud of the fact that my mother asked me. She says, "Aren't you doing something with the family?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "I'm working on a CD." I said, "I'm going to Rondo's house, and he's got a studio in his house, and we're recording everything there." And Obama's picking out the stuff. She says, well, "What are you going to call it?" And I didn't have a title, but I was talking to my mother, and I said, "Well, I'm real grateful." I said, "Maybe gratitude." And then she says, "Oh, that's perfect." Because I guess that just fell right in line with her beliefs. You know, you got to be grateful. And I am. I'm extremely grateful. And that's the other piece. Many of us don't recognize that every moment of the day we should stop and think about the things we have we should be grateful for because we can spend a lot of time talking about the wounds and the pain, but we have something to be grateful for. And that's an album is a testimony to that. And I really am extremely proud of it. And I hope that it does as well as I imagine it can. I'm certainly proud of it. I love it. And uh, I'm proud of your, your sons and three generations. That is so awesome, dude. Um, yeah. If you want to get a hold of the album or visit the CD release party, we're going to provide that information on New Abolitionist Radio along with other things throughout the night. And uh, we'll keep you up to date on it. Uh, Doon, thank you so much again for sharing your time here with us. And uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you this summer. I'll come by and, and we'll have brunch again <laughs> with everybody else. And how's how's Tribal doing? Tribal's all right? She's doing good. You know, she went through some dramas. Uh, she was paralyzed for a while there. But just recently, she got back on stage again at the session live for the first time. And uh, it was wonderful. Powerful, standing ovation. And well, uh, everybody was just so amazed to see her come back. I expect her to yes. make a rebound because she has a very strong constitution. And uh, and I'm proud of you, brother, for just keeping the fire burning and and sticking by her side. And brothers, uh, the rest of you brothers that we've been talking this evening, thank you for listening to me and thank you for sharing and and just you know making a contribution in whatever way you can. The work is to be continued. Thank you, sir. Amen. Indeed. Indeed. Right. Thank, thank you. you. All right. As they say, what's the expression we used to use? A luta continua. <laughs> Peace, brother Doom. Peace. Peace. All right, y'all. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Max Parker, Scotty Reed, and Johanna Liars. Should we take a quick break, Scotty Reed? Or just- uh, yes, let's go ahead and take um, a quick break since we uh, didn't take any other ones, which I didn't want to interrupt y'all flow, so it's all good. Words. We'll be right back after these messages. This is Ron Hayes with Hood News, and you're listening to the Black Talk Radio Network. Stay tuned. The Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. Make Black Talk Radio your choice for digital black radio. New black media. They started a slave ship. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. It seems inconceivable. 
until you effectively for 200 years ship sail carrying problems like non-violent. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, is actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Here come the drums! Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We just had our interview with legendary Abby Odunoriwole of The Last Poets. And uh, it was amazing. Amazing things came out of that. Uh, it's inspirational. Uh, anything, guys? It's just good to hear his perspective, you know, knowing he's seasoned the way that he is with so many decades of being on the front lines of it, being inside, behind the scenes. I mean, uh, I was uh, I was listening to his... Um, his excitement about the young artists that are out now, that was interesting to me that he sees, you know, the other side of it. And he knows there's people that are conscious and conscientious that are within the music industry and, and in these, you know, professional industries is paying this big millions of dollars or whatever. So that, that was interesting to hear, you know, that you could hear the hope, you could hear the spark of excitement in his voice about some of the people that he feels like, you know, are, are, got their head on right and, and will do the right thing. So that was encouraging. I mean, it was also yeah. encouraging for, for him, um, you know, just pointing out the fact that we're taught to be hoarders in our community. Uh, we're mm -hmm. in, in this country, period. Everyone is. We're taught. It's all about individualism. Get your, I'm going to get mine. I don't know how you're going to get yours and whatnot. And he talked about you know, these celebrities and, and, um, um, multimillionaire sports players and whatnot, not giving back to the community. But, you know, the, the guys here, um, Cam Newton, uh, Thomas Davis, a number of them guys, man, they do a whole lot, you know, but, you know, uh, they're a lot younger cats though, but, you know, we do need more of that, man, you know, but we're taught to be capitalists like old Thomas Jefferson, who was counting up. How much capital he was gaining for every black baby born enslaved on his plantation. And that's what we, we, we strive to be. We strive to be like Tom Jefferson. We, we strive to increase our capital and whatnot. And socialism, I don't like labels and whatnot, but what he was talking about has been described as socialism. You know, where the, where, where everybody is part of the same family and, and we helping each other out. Of course, he was talking about it in the context of the black family. And, and we definitely do need more of that. I mean, he mentioned Michael Jordan. Of course, I'm in North Carolina, followed Michael Jordan's career. You know, all this dude is worried about his stacking paper, man, and basketball. It, it literally, those two things, stacking paper and basketball. He ain't, you know, people could say, well, don't people got jobs by way of, you know, the NBA team he owned? Look, them jobs was there the last time somebody owned the same team and whatnot. He didn't, he's not creating any new jobs. He is not opening up any abandoned factory space here in, I mean, in Charlotte, North Carolina and all around since textiles Mills been shutting down left and right for the past 20 days. Plenty of factory space, but, you know, he'd rather pay like 
$5 per shoe to have a shoe made or a pair of shoes made in a communist country, you know, uh, where those people do got health care as a right, um, mind you. But he'd rather take that money over there, use their factories instead of using these factories right here and creating some jobs. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, he was just on point with everything he said, man, you know, being selfless and not so much being caught up in the great I am, you know what I'm saying? So, I, I, I man, he touched upon so much. So, you know, I'm a definitely people, if uh, y'all came in late, y'all need to check out the podcast later. Yeah, he was talking about building and destroying. But I would like to, to point out one thing, though, that uh, because we're, we see so many uh, people of color paraded around uh, as rich and wealthy. The facts are, of the 47 million African Americans in the United States, only 5% make more than $350,000 or have more than, more than $350,000 in assets. Of that 5%, about 4,000 of them have a million or more in assets. So we really don't have that many of us who have that kind of money. Uh, it seems like a large majority of them would be in sports. Uh, I couldn't tell you for certain, but it appears that way based on the images that we see. If it's so five thousand, if it's five thousand of them with a million or more in assets, it's four thousand nine hundred or more of them that's got a non-black attorney that's overseeing their money. <laughs> say it, say it, man. I mean, make it that what you will, but I'm just saying it's going to be real hard for you to go to to Sheldon. Who or whoever, uh, Mr. Gold, Mr. Diamond, uh, Mr. Cohen, uh, whoever's running your money and giving you your access to your black card and your daily spend amount, uh, when you try to plan for your estate, when you try to plan for what you want to do for your future generations and so forth, oh, I got you, I got it under control, I'll take care of it. When it's time to pay your taxes, oh, I got you, don't worry about it, it's all taken care of, you know. But when you want to take $10,000 to put it in a brother or sister's hand, to make moves, you know, you got to justify where that money's coming from. And I can pretty much guarantee you, you're going to be discouraged from doing that. You're going to get the runaround. You're going to have a bunch of forms to sign. We're going to have to get this cleared. I'm going to get it to you as soon as I can. And then in the meantime, I'm going to try to discourage you from doing it. And hopefully you don't ever do it. I'm going to show you how this is financially not something you need to be involved with. Plus it's going to affect your image. If you look like you, so, you know, it's just like some non never ending long laundry list of bull that uh, is actually between these black folks and all these millions of dollars that they supposedly have. I don't think they really got access to it to, to really just go in and say, look, man, I need a million dollars to go do this, this, and the other, unless they ain't go buy some kind of new Bentley or Rolls Royce or Bugatti or some mess, buy a mansion or some shit, like, or buy some, something like that. Well, before we get into our stories, I just want to remind people where they're listening to, uh, who they're listening to, and what we're about. When, this is New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network, Black-owned, Black-operated station, Black Radio Matters. You can pick up a T-shirt through uh, our website at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And also, uh, what is the other website, Scotty, where they can get the T-shirts to support the cause? Uh, blacktalkmediaproject.org. That's the official website for the nonprofit. BlackTalkMediaProject.org. Just go there and support the cause. Um, we believe that slavery never ended. We think it's being exploited. It has been exploited through the 13th Amendment Exception Clause. We believe that private prisons play a large role in prison for profit, but are not limited to private prisons. Uh, it's kind of like uh, the situation we see is where private prisons 
and federal and state prisons all use the same people for the same resources. So effectively, it's all prison for profit, which is slavery by any other name or slavery by another name, as the documentary says. Uh, we believe that we can end these things in this lifetime, in this generation, by taking the 13th Amendment Exception Clause out, making it illegal to have private for-profit prison industries and prison-related industries, and by freeing people upwards in the 1 to 1.4 million people who deserve to be out of these jail cells. That's what we believe here as abolitionists, and we're hoping we can get this done in our lifetime. We believe we can. But just in case... We've got people in the lines growing up right now, ready to take that baton and keep carrying it until the victory is won. Um, is there any stories from the past two weeks? Because, you know, last week we had some technical difficulties and we missed out on a lot of stuff. Is there anything you guys want to pull up in particular this week that we can start with? Man, there's so much. <laughs> right, right. We loaded down, man. Well, you can pretty much just take a shot at any of it. It's all going to be equally, you know, murderous and, and terroristic and, and slavery, you know, overall. So, I mean, which which one stands out to you, Max? Well, I can bring out some good news. Uh, well, it's, it's mostly good news. And that's uh, recently here in South Carolina, two pieces of legislation have come out. One's come out to end the uh, pr uh, school-to-prison uh, pipeline, which is really good. Uh, another one that came out is to end ticket quotas by law enforcement. And uh, I'll put the article up on New Abolitionist Radio. But apparently people have been listening here in South Carolina. You know, brothers are making a lot of noise. And I knew on the day that Tribal Rain went to the hospital, when the new newspaper published their findings or their information and quoted us regarding the cost of incarcerating a child here in South Carolina at $161,000 a year, I knew then that somebody was listening. And apparently those somebody have made it their business to put legislation for it, to make a difference. So they're restricting these quotas or banning these quotas altogether. They also said in the article that if they exist, I'm going to let that slide because we all know they exist. <laughs> but they're making them illegal. And that's a big step forward. And also uh, doing what they can to take officers out of South Carolina schools so that they have no uh, initial or no interaction with the students themselves. And that anything going on in the school, unless it breaks the law of the state or the county or the land, should not be high, uh, handled by policemen. So this is the new uh, legislation coming out of South Carolina. I think wow, got to, hey, got to support that. Man, we got to yeah. get the grassroots behind that right there because we definitely don't need to see no more images a little black girls being slung across the room by some some uh, cop jacked up on steroids. Right. Yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to India Sada out of Charleston who led a movement, uh, Black Girl Lives Matter, in order to uh, bring this into fruition and to bring the attention to these issues. Uh, she has been a guest of ours. Uh, and also, you know, when South Carolina is doing things like that, I mean, i got to give them credit where credit is due for things that they do when they address uh, with it. After the Charleston 9, they took the flag down, you know that. Uh, remember when the guy was shot at the gas station here in Columbia? They immediately arrested the officer. And four out of the five people who ran as abolitionists for political offices came from here in South Carolina. You know, when the KKK came through, they threw them out. We threw them out collectively. And now for them to be doing this is real cool. But at the same time, they're doing something else that's just as sneaky. Uh, they're proposing now here in South Carolina legislation that could send teenagers uh, to jail or prison 
for up to 10 years for uh, violence in dating. This is in addition to all crimes and uh, charges that may already exist regarding violence against anyone. So now if you're in a dating situation and you, there's some violence going on or maybe you strike a teenage girl, you're going to get 10 years, period, plus whatever time the, the uh, assault charge would get you. So, you know, they take gotta it out get them Gotta put them enhancements on. But you know, there's a, all you gotta do is track down who introduced that, who co sponsored it, and then start following the money and what have you. You know. So uh but yeah, that that's that's uh that's messed up. But my initial thought was, man, they got a law on the books already for everything. And how much of this is just really political theater? Where you know they want to act like they're doing something by passing new legislation on top of legislation and others, you know what I'm saying? So, man, yeah, it's just kind of confusing when, on one hand, you're saying you want to end the school to prison pipeline, on the other hand, you're guaranteeing 10 years. If, uh, say a 16 year old girl got slapped by her boyfriend, you're going to send that 16 year old boy to prison for 10 years automatically. This is the same as the, the three strike rules or the minimum sentencing, but it applies to children. And, you know, there's been an attack on our children to get them to go to prison earlier. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was just reading an article. I can't find it at the moment. Uh, I was turned on to it by Yusuf Hassan out of Patterson, New Jersey, one of our listeners. And it's about an eight year old boy who is being charged with murder uh, for beating his infant sister to death. Uh, apparently, the mother was out clubbing, and I'll find the story before you know, the night's out. The mother was out clubbing, left this eight-year-old boy in charge of his little sister as a babysitter. And the young boy, according to the story, uh, tried to stop the little girl from screaming by smacking her, a learned process. And she wouldn't stop crying, and he continued to smack her, and he literally beat her to death. So now prosecutors want to charge this eight-year-old boy with murder. Yeah, you and I discussed that uh, discussed that story. Um, just sad state of affairs once again. You know, I mean, it's, that's what I was saying. Like, you could pretty much just throw a dart at the board, man, and you're going to have stories that really would make anybody with a heart and soul shed tears because, I mean, it's just a sad state. But, you know, they uh, made sure they did not charge her, uh, um, I think, just to set a precedent to be able to prosecute him at that age. And uh, kind of to go along with that, it was a story about the the young children. Um, I believe that was in Texas. I think I could find that story too. But they, where they were uh, talking about the young children that was involved in a fight that wasn't even at school. Um, and uh, little kids from age eight to thirteen, they 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 got into a, a fight in somebody's backyard over a basketball game they was playing. Somebody, you know, just little kids tussling over the ball and got into a fight. Somebody videotaped it and ended up on social media. The police went to the school the next day and arrested like five little kids. And, uh, you know, it's, you, you're right. It is a straight up war on our children. And we saw how long the, uh, kids for cash scandal went on in Pennsylvania years ago, a few years back. And that, that didn't start to really, get notoriety and, and somebody get involved to stop that sad to say but it's just the truth until they started taking too many little white kids out of out of the high schools then all of a sudden people started fussing so it reminds me of matthew fogg talking about you know why don't we go kick in the doors in these in these other neighborhoods 
you know, and the, where these other folks is at, and his his supervisor's telling him, no, as soon as we go in there and go kick in some of their doors, they're going to be complaining to people that's our bosses downtown. They're going to get us, you know, shut down. So you just do what we tell you to do and uh, keep your mouth shut. So uh, it's just difficult to stray from the same narrative because it's the same truth. It's the same pattern. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an intense attack, a genocide on, you know, on black life, man. It's just no way around that. I found that story. It's in Alabama, actually, uh, with the eight year old girl. And I put it up on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, I was talking to you the other night, as you said, and uh, we mentioned a story about the five year old boy who shot his sibling in the head because the parents, uh, white parents, left their gun out and unlocked. And this five-year-old child was able to get a hold of it, but they didn't charge that five-year-old child with murder. Uh, I guess that family didn't fit the description as this one in Alabama does. Uh, you got all these stereotypes that a racist genocidal maniac could want. You know, you got the clubbing mother who's acting ratchet and little uneducated baby who's just beating his, brutally beating his little sister to death like he has no compassion for anyone, even his own family. It's everything you could sell to try to send children to prison. Oh, right. you just you just jogged my memory. And I was just thinking today um, when I was listening to this other radio show, and I was like, man, do they not know Hillary Clinton it was reported on Black Talk Radio News. I wasn't the first to report it because obviously I had to see a report to report on it. But she gave an interview in New York to a uh, newspaper there, to their editorial board. And on, in doing this interview, she talked about boarding schools for poor kids. And the first image that popped into my mind was, you know, the images that I have seen of, you know, mm -hmm. Native American children being, you know, uh, uh, dressed in, you know, in their cultural garb, you know, long hair, you know, whatever clothes they were wearing. And then they put them in the boarding school and cut their hair and gave them these little uniforms and, and try to make them white. You know, not quite white, but, you know, you're going to act like how we think you should act, you know, because before you're savages and whatnot. And now we're going to put you in these boarding schools and we're going to civilize you. That's the vibe I was getting from what she was proposing, boarding school for poor kids. And this has not uh, been on the mainstream media. Now, that I mean, who who's going to give up their kid? You know, what right does this government or anybody have to say? And she was saying stuff like these kids come to school with all kind of problems and whatnot. You know, just the general trope uh, and, and the stereotypes we have about they, they make about, quote unquote, poor kids and what have you. But she talked about a, a system of boarding schools to send these little poor kids to. And, you know, whether or not the parents will get them back during the summers, I don't know. I don't know if there's going to be a year round school. And then I was also thinking about, you know, Bernie Sanders was talking about free college tuition at public universities and whatnot. And the whole thing was, well, how are we going to pay for them? How are you going to pay for them? He had to pay, in to, uh, pay for them. But that's what you will hear from Hillary and, and, and her parents uh, uh, and whatnot. But I'm like, OK, I'm thinking, well, Hillary Clinton. First of all, I'm opposed to these boarding schools for poor children because I know what children you're talking about and how you going to pay for it. And and really all we're talking about is probably just, you know, a, a glamorized version of a damn prison. 
oh, this juvenile detention facility, I think is the term they use. I mean, that, that it disgusts me, man, that people yeah, do gonna, not know gonna, the nature of that beast named Hillary Clinton. Right. I want to hey, piggyback yeah. on, on this uh, theme, you know, since we're talking about the children and the, uh, and, you know, the school to prison pipeline. And like I just said, you know, as far as affecting, uh, you know, non-whites primarily. And, and this is the thing. I, I always uh, strive to speak on factual information. I'm not coming at this like from emotion or from a place of, you know, my, my feelings is hurt or I'm going, you know, start ranting and raving or something just based at, at, a, at a illogical conclusions I didn't come to. We're talking about the facts of the matter. We've done the school to prison pipeline numbers state to state damn near, you know, definitely every major metro area across the country. And it's always black leading uh, suspensions. It's always black leading expulsions. It's always black leading special education programs. It's always black leading in detentions, black leading in every kind of, of, of uh, disciplinary action or, or getting some kind of less than optimum education, the least in any kind of uh, uh, academic excellence programs, academically enriched programs, uh, honors programs, all of these things are, are conspiring to uh, keep our children out of, you know, the, the prime situation they need to be in if they're going to be in this public system in the first place. But then let me add to black, the Latino problem is just as bad. They're the number two right behind us. And in some states like California, the number one. And on the same level as what our children are facing in the school to prison pipeline uh, problem, you cannot uh, overlook what is happening to the the newest Latinos that arrive in this country every day, the so-called illegal immigrants with the family detention issues that's going on around the country. We have people fighting in cities around America right now to keep the private prison companies from expanding into their cities, cities like Gary, Indiana that are fighting, the people are fighting to stop them from building a family detention center in Gary, Indiana, because they want to use the local airport that's there to fly these people in and put them in, in a family detention centers. They're fighting in states across the country and in federal court right now to, uh, to get classification as child care centers. I'm not even making this up. So this is what's happening to these Latino people. You don't see anywhere in America, or really even on planet Earth, you don't see anywhere where white children are being brought to heal, being disciplined, being called out, being set aside, being being made to feel less than, being detained, being uh, anything, nothing going on. So there is no way around the validity of the argument that it is a war against non-white children right now. Everybody else is catching hell. And we know who ain't. So, you know, come see me about them facts. And we've shown the proof and evidence in the video presentation that I put out uh, called The Cost of Living. It shows you exactly how much it costs state to state to incarcerate one teenager for one year. And the prices range up as far as $353,000 a year. Uh, there is no justification for that. I don't, I mean, you must be feeding these children on gold-plated plates, caviar 24 hours a day, and champagne with strippers and everything else you can imagine that you could just waste money on. $353,000 a year oh. to incarcerate, I mean, 
incarcerate one teenager. You could send an entire block to college for $353,000 in a year. You could build facilities that would prevent the children from ever going. Right. How about investing three hundred fifty-three thousand dollars a year? How about investing in those communities? But oh, I mean, you just kind of <laughs> said something when you talked about like New York. Let's go back to New York. That's where it's what three hundred fifty thousand a year in New York. The top yes. end, right? Maybe Hillary Clinton and Associates is eyeing that money with me talking about these boarding schools, man. I'm serious. Well, we already know they're involved because uh, the governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, is a former lobbyist for CEC, which builds a lot of these halfway houses across New Jersey and in South Carolina here, as well as other states. And, uh, you know, we also know that the investments of the GEO Group, which CEC is apparently a part of, uh, have made contributions to the uh, to the Clinton campaign. It is what it is, man. All we can do is report on it and keep trying to wake people up to what's going on and continue to hit them and hit them and hit them week after week, day after day, hour by hour with the news, with the information, with the facts. All we can do is keep on standing on our sterling, uh, totally unblemished reputation, the foundation (laughs) of what we're talking about, man. We just haven't been. I mean, here recently, we just this was one of the most interesting debates. And it's still ongoing. We just had the other day with Brother uh, Ken Williams where we were talking about, you know, he was talking about addressing how we're approaching the abolitionist platform and what we're actually trying to achieve. And he's the first person, honest guy, man, in what, six, five, six years that I've ever discussed anything having to do with this that's ever presented an argument. that, And he wasn't con- uh, contrary to what we were saying. He just was adding some other ways of looking at it. Yeah. So, you know, and nobody is coming to us and there's a reason why. I'm not up here saying it's like bragging or or feeling like we, you know, bulletproof or something. All I, I know who is Ken Williams is, by the way. He's a, a one of my Facebook friends. I guess you know he's he's all of our Facebook friends at this point. At this point, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this brother is uh is powerful, working in the legal yeah. system to bring uh bring retired detective. Retired detective, as far as I know, uh, constitutional uh-huh. lawyer. Yeah, he's he's actually put. Uh, police in prison. So, you know, I, I gotta trust him off the jump for that, for actually getting some yeah. of them to go, you know, sending, sending them behind bars. But, uh, yeah, our reputation, man, is sterling. You can listen to this and doubt it if you want. And I mean, I'm talking to longtime listeners, first time listeners, somebody that just popped in here because they, you know, heard a little somebody want to see what it is. I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to find any lies, any holes in what we're talking about. This is the facts. All we can do is report what is going on around you. So turn yeah. a blind eye if you want to. I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to enlighten him to our perspective. As you said, mm-hmm. he's the first person to come out and from that position, and they're all hearing us, and they're going on about their business using our information, but they're not coming to us. They're saying, mm-hmm. hey, can we talk about this? What is it we're trying to accomplish? Maybe we can bump heads together and make it happen. Instead, it's more of an opposition thing. So I appreciate when somebody doesn't come at us in an offensive way and says, what is it that you really want? Because I don't understand, and how can I help? Right, right. So peace to him for that. Like you said, they just use the information. But but the thing that you tend to see, and I know I have been critical of Black Lives Matter, for example, uh, but there's other groups that's out there, of course. I mean, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement is is one of the groups that brought me in 
uh, kind of through the side door with the uh, unexplainable black death when they did the uh, Operation Ghetto Storm in 2012. Uh, when they put that report out, they gave us the first numbers. Uh, about one every 28 hours is murdered by, you know, law enforcement or security guard or some sort of a, a neighborhood vigilante. Uh, that was tw- that was in 2012. Um, now, we don't necessarily interact with them on a regular basis, but that's an example of a group that has their mission. They're not taking our information and going as far as they can with it and then falling on their face because they don't understand, you know, and that's what I see in some of these groups. They take bits and pieces of what we say as far as it's convenient and then try to run with it and ultimately push their other agenda, the LBGTQ agenda, the feminist agenda, uh, some other, you know, transsexual what rights. I mean, start pushing this other stuff and they fall flat on their face. And when they actually get the microphone and get in front of political uh, officials or get in front of people where they have positions of power or have say so in society, they don't have an agenda. They don't have a, a real clear plan of what they're trying to do. So. You know, shout out to those that listen to us and work with us and incorporate us in, you know, what they're trying to do. Like we had a chance for our sister Nakima Levy Pounds to come on and uh, and speak in that debate we were having and, and, you know, come in and definitely support abolitionism because she's an abolitionist attorney herself and law professor and president of the Minneapolis NAACP. So, you know, it's, it's all good if you're working with us and you hear what we're saying. But if you're just trying to take bits and pieces, it's not going to last you too long. Well, you know, we're coming up towards the part where we got to do our last couple of segments and we're running a little short on time. So we need to get into those. Um, definitely had an incredible evening tonight, very powerful, poetic, exclusive here. So have you doing all your own self, as a matter of fact, talking about the Green Book. And as you said, all the things that he, he brought to light with us, very powerful. And these stories that we just talked about, there are other stories out there we want you to be aware of as well, like what's going on with Chicago, the new study that comes out and proves what black folks have been saying for the past 100 and 200 and 300 years. Uh, so you need to check that out. Um, you also need to check out uh, the other story that just came out from Baltimore where another teenager has been shot carrying a toy gun. Another young black child, 13 years old, shot two days in Baltimore over a toy gun. So those stories will be coming out. We're going to get into our next story, which uh, is our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Scotty, do you want to play the video, or should we read? That? I got the video. I got the clip ready. All right, ladies and gentlemen, our rider of the 21st Century Underground this week is Eddie Bolden, who has been in prison for 22 years and just recently was released and got his son's graduation. The release of Eddie Bolden, Marcella. Hi, guys. Uh, yeah, you know, there is so much anticipation here today. He is expected to be released at any moment. His family and attorney are all here right now just waiting for that hug that they can give him when he leaves the Cook County Jail. Uh, today, Eddie Bolden learned in court that those double murder charges, state's attorney dropped those charges against him. Eddie Bolden is 46 now and spent the last 22 years in prison after being wrongfully convicted of two drug-related murders. The Cook County judge ordered a new trial in January after deciding his trial lawyer at the time did not interview crucial alibi witnesses and that the case was biased, or based, I should say, on extremely thin evidence. The 1994 conviction was based on the testimony of a single eyewitness. Three others placed him in a Southside restaurant at the time of the murders, but those witnesses never testified. Bolden's family says they believed his innocence all along and for two decades have been trying to get someone to listen to them. 
at the end of the day, there's a human being that's going to jail, and that's not a joyful thing. You think it's the right thing, so justice is served and it's satisfying, but it's not joyful. This is joyful. He called me. He said, come get me now. <laughs> and he got off the phone real quick. <laughs> so he's happy. Eddie Bolden has a son who was a year old when he was sent off to prison. That son is graduating from college in Indiana this weekend, and Eddie Bolden plans to be there. I'm live at the Cook County Criminal Courts building at the jail. Marcella Raymond, WGN News. Wow. Shout out to Eddie Bolden. Salute, brother. Welcome to freedom. Man, let, let me just say this about that clip. Um, and I know we're short on time. Let me say this real quick. Now, you was one of his witnesses. Why did the attorney have to contact you? And you seen this brother was being put on trial. Then you heard this brother was convicted. And he was standing outside the restaurant with you. Where the hell was you at not jumping up and down and talking to whoever would listen to you and whatnot? I mean, come on. What happened? What what happened there? We know the system is corrupt. We know it's going to do what it do. But then when we see these injustices and we don't want to put ourselves on the line. Well, I ain't going to say nothing. There. They might try to say I was with them or something like that. You know, we go, we start looking out for self only, man. That That's a problem, man. There's no love in the world, you know, because how could you let somebody that you know was innocent be sent to, to slavery, into slavery for such a heinous crime? You know he didn't commit that. That's just, man, that's messed up, man. Damn. Well, Who's to say that they didn't say it already and that information was... Well, that's true. We know we've seen that before. Yeah, that's true. That's it's true. It's possible. But so, then, you want to know, people want to talk about all these missing black fathers and single mothers out there? <laughs> Exhibit A. Right. Yeah. It's just wonderful that he got to see his son graduate. He was a hero in the prison. He kind of reminds me of my own son whose daughter, Destiny, born on my birthday. Uh, he went to prison a week after she was born. And uh, he'll be getting out in a year, and she's going on 13 years old. And, uh, I don't think he's seen her in the past eight years, at least. So, yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to he can get out and his daughter. Anyway, man, uh, that's a powerful story. Again, salute, uh, Brother Eddie Bolden. Welcome to Freedom. We're going to move on to our next segment which is our abolitionist in profile. And this week, our abolitionist in profile is courtesy of tonight's guest, Abio Dunoriwole. I called him up this afternoon and asked him who his favorite abolitionist was, so we could do this in his honor. And the first thing that came out of his uh, uh, brain was John Brown. He said, I love John Brown because he was Nat, Nat Turner's right-hand man. He said he was down... They were down with Harriet Tubman. See, he knows, like I know, they, this was all happening simultaneously, and all these people knew each other, and they were very similar positions, you know what I mean? And he says, I don't know, I guess, Sojourner Truth. And she, he said he just saw a statue of her in New York that they unveiled, uh, which was uh, magnificent. So today, we do this in honor of him, and that is Sojourner Truth. Scotty, you have a clip ready for that, or should in we... In 1851... The black abolitionist and former slave, Sojourner Truth, spoke to a gathering of feminists in Akron, Ohio. The spontaneous speech, only a few minutes long, was a landmark moment in feminist and abolitionist history. That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages. 
lifted over ditches and to have the best plates everywhere. <laughs> Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles or gives me any best plates. And ain't I a woman? I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as any man when I could get it, and I could bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children, seen most sold off into slavery. And when I cried out with a mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? I just think it's really important for us to learn our history as a nation. I think, unfortunately, a lot of us I've learned a history that's really single-sided. It's not the full picture. This performance, these books, these readings really allow for us to know our history in a more balanced, honest way. That, that man in the back there, he says, women can't have as much rights as men because Christ wasn't a woman. Well, where did your Christ come from? <laughs> where did your Christ come come from. He came from God and a woman. Man didn't have nothing to do with it. People are often shocked at how much these writings and speeches and journal entries relate to the present, you know, because in, in the introductions you hear that it's from 1963 or it's from 1894 and, and then you hear what the person was thinking then and you think, wow, that's how I feel about the Iraq war or that's how I feel about the state of healthcare in this country right now. It's frightening and affirming how similar the thoughts are. The more people engage with this work, the better off we will all be in this country. If, if the first woman God ever made was strong enough to turn the world upside down all alone, well, these women here together ought to be able to turn it back and get it right side up again. <laughs> And they ask him to do it. The men better let him. For more of the People Speak, go to history.com slash people speak. We here at New, New Abolitionist Radio salute Sister Sojourner Truth. Man, you know what was that that was Carrie Washington who was reading Carrie Washington of Scandal Fame, Carrie Washington of Django Fame. Um, mm -hmm. that's about all I know. Um, but anyway, that was her man. And it's just sad. It, this is just sad that she reading about an abolitionist, you know, acting as the voice of an abolitionist. I was waiting to hear at least mass incarceration come out of her mouth. She's in healthcare and, 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 you know, she didn't make the connection that abolitionism is still alive today. That those will be my final comments for tonight, since we're short on time. But that's what I got from that clip, man. It's right there in front of you. You just almost touch yeah. it. You're you're playing a part of an abolitionist. You're thinking like she was thinking, but you yet you were unable to make the connection to modern times. And so again, that is why New Abolitionist Radio was created. Seems like we got to wake Carrie up. Indeed. You know, uh, which also reminds me, too, uh, 
I guess I'll save it for my final comment, but I'm certainly not with that $20 bill with Harry Tubman. We said that before when they first suggested it, and now that it has been determined that she is going to be on the $20 bill, I will save my comments about how I feel for the end, but I'm certainly not with it. All right. Well, I'll say uh, to that um, that I don't think it's anything anybody going to have to worry about because first thing, uh, the the Treasury Department already said that the, they wouldn't be changing the bills until at least until at least the year 2030. So it'll probably be even beyond that. Mm-hmm. And uh, second to that, people seem to have not read the entire story or you know what have you. But they said that Jackson was not going to be removed from the bill. He's just going to be on the back of the bill. So you go have Harriet Tubman on the face of the bill and have Andrew Jackson on the back of the bill. So if you're supporting that in any kind of way, you're supporting some damn foolishness. I mean, it ain't no way around it. How in the hell are you going to have the number one known anyway, widely known uh, abolitionist underground railroad conductor of all time on the face of the same currency note as one of the number one slavers of his time, one of the numbers, number one genocide murderers. I mean, you got the trail of tears. You got this dude chasing black folks all the way down in the Seminole territory. I mean, this man was was vicious about killing Negroes, hated them. It ain't like this passive stance that you get to see a, a, a Jefferson. Evidently, he loved him so much he put him on in his bloodline or whatever. I mean, you get this idea from some of these other presidents and these other forefathers or whatever, like they were some kind of way, you know, uh, 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 nice guys or something. They wasn't as bad. Jackson didn't give a damn. He straight out let him hang and did whatever he wanted to do. So you're going to have him on the backside with Tubman. Man, get out of here. Uh, I, I really don't have much else. You know, uh, clean up your act, folks, if you can hear us. Just, that's the main thing you can do. Take care of yourself. Clean up your act. Clean up your mind. Get yourself together. Seek some righteousness so we can get into this fight for real. You're not going to be able to have a foot in the world and, and a foot in righteousness. So let's let's go back to basics, try to get our minds together and start making some moves to uh, to tear this system down. Peace to the abolitionists, death to the oppressors. Word. Once again, I'd like to thank our guest uh, and uh, the brother that sent in the question to ask him um, regarding the $20 bill and Harry Tubman. I bet you she would be amazed to know that once again, she is being bought, sold, and traded now on a $20 bill uh, for one thing. As far as the money is concerned, all the people who have pictures on the currency we use today have all been complicit in the oppression of our people. I'd like to keep it that way. And I'd also like you to remember this, that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Rise up, 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 when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you 
yards our father's children when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing rise up when salmon claims millions when justice gives blind eyes to billions when the lord's anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up no matter the prize